Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him, the sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield, so he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are in APY. APY can change at any time. Is a gory TV show about teen girls stranded in the wild really the best way to talk about trauma? I'm Constance Grady, and I write about culture for Vox. And this week, I'm your host for Vox Conversations. Lately, it seems like people who make pop culture are all telling us that their stories are really about the same thing. It's what WandaVision is really all about. What makes you think that talking about it would bring me comfort? And Ted Lasso. I knew right then and there that I was never going to let anybody get by me without understanding they might be hurting inside. Even the new Halloween movies. You can't close your eyes and pretend he isn't there. It's become very cool lately to say that your new superhero movie or horror franchise or wholesome sitcom is all about trauma. And we're also in the middle of a backlash to that movement. Part of my job is to follow the conversations people are having about storytelling. And lately, the trauma conversation has been a big one. At The New Yorker, the literary critic Parl Sagel wrote The Case Against the Trauma Plot. She argued that today's storytellers have turned trauma into a cliché, into something weak and flattening. And my colleague, Fox's critic at large, Emily Vanderwerf, argued something similar in her review of the new Matrix movie. Emily wrote, I often find the mere attempt to make these stories about trauma vaguely insulting, as though the word trauma is a coat of paint being used to give the stories a veneer of seriousness they didn't remotely earn. We keep trying to tell stories about trauma, and we're maybe doing a really bad job at it. Which is part of why the new Showtime series Yellow Jackets is so interesting. Because Yellow Jackets is definitely about trauma, but it's doing a great job at telling its story. Yellow Jackets is about a soccer team of teen girls whose plane crashes in the remote Canadian wilderness in 1996. They spend 19 months stranded in the woods, and at some point, they apparently do some ritual cannibalism. In the present day, we meet some of the surviving girls as adult women. 
Some of them are leading apparently functional lives. Some of them are obvious train wrecks, but absolutely none of them are okay. I know what you want to hear, but the truth is, the plane crashed, a bunch of my friends died, and the rest of us starved and scavenged and prayed for 19 months till they finally found us. And that's the end of the story. I think we both know there's a bit more to it than that. And the ways in which they are not okay map really closely onto the ways trauma can end up shaping and reshaping a person's life. So if I wanted to know more about the current fascination with trauma in TV and movies, I figured, why not talk to one of the creators of that show? That's why I'm joined today by Bart Nickerson, one of the three showrunners for Yellow Jackets. We talk about the challenges of depicting trauma, how he approaches character development, and I ask him about what's in store for America's favorite stranded girls soccer team in season two. Bart Nickerson, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. This is great. So... The question of Yellow Jackets as a show about trauma, which is such a buzzword right now in pop culture, everything from like WandaVision to the Halloween movies are suddenly considered to be about trauma. So to start off, what do you think makes trauma such a tempting subject for storytellers and especially in stories that are about adolescents? You know, I don't know what makes trauma such like a sort of like compelling place to go for story. I mean, on uh, the one hand, you know, I think there's just the sort of dramatic fact that stories that cause trauma tend to be very heightened. And so it uh, leaves you a lot of sort of dramatic uh, incident. Um, In terms of seeing the after effects of it, you know, I mean, there are potentially a few obvious things to point to in the sort of uh, zeitgeist right now, uh, just in terms of the way the world feels to everybody. And you know, having a kind of an interest, even if it's more of like a subconscious thing, because like, I obviously don't know, like, the greater function of story in a kind of society, right. But what I tend to suspect is that it's a place that we come to find answers, uh, maybe even to questions that we haven't kind of asked yet. And so Mm. I think like that something gets turned on and queued up and is looking for uh, a kind of information about how to handle a particular kind of circumstance. And so I think that that might translate as a a kind of an interest in stories about how to process things that you are completely unable to and unequipped to process, if that makes sense. Definitely, definitely. That's something that a fairy tale scholar I talked to once said, Jack Zipes, he said that the reason we keep telling those stories over and over again is that they're working out ideas that we keep having problems with. And so we keep coming back to them. Yeah, 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 yeah. So for this particular story, how did you come to this story of trauma? Well, uh, kind of Ashley Lyle, my co-writer, a life partner, we are married. We spend a tremendous amount of time together. And as people that live and work together, like especially having the good fortune to do so in such a creative field, we are in each other's space a lot. And so it is not uncommon in our house when we're cooking dinner or doing the sort of day-to-day kind of life stuff that uh, one of us turns to the other and goes, hey, uh, what do you think about like this kind of thing? And oftentimes the other person will kind of react like, uh, well, yeah, maybe, or I guess I'm not sure. But then 
couple of days or a couple of weeks later, certain kind of ideas seem to sort of start to call forth kind of other ideas. And then at some point, there's a sort of like story gravity where it's like, oh, like this might be a real thing. And like, oh, we should start to talk about it. So this one just kind of started as a sort of girls sports team lost in the woods. Mm -hmm. um, and then very quickly, the idea of telling it in two timelines was added and uh, pretty quickly cannibalism came in. Um, it was just like, oh, they should resort to cannibalism. Oh, of course. Yeah, it just, yeah, I mean, if you're going to do it, like, you might as well do it. <laughs> and so then, like, process-wise, we have the good fortune of living very close to Griffith Park. And we will go on walks slash hikes to discuss character. And each sort of, like, walk, although it wasn't, like, necessarily kind of intended, like, turned into, like, oh, like, I guess this is a, kind of the Misty hike or this is the Jackie hike. Mm -hmm. And we just sort of, like, filled out the characters and then started to craft story from that. Now, I don't know if it's noteworthy, but kind of obvious in that is like, we didn't say like, oh, let's have this be about trauma. You sort of like just go to where your curiosity is, where your kind of excitement is for us. And each time that we started to talk about things in those terms, take for instance, telling the story in two timelines, but not wanting as much as possible the 96 stories to feel like flashbacks, right? Mm -hmm. Like, so that's a sort of creative choice that we sort of like make on the fly by kind of intuition. And I don't want to say it turns out because like, uh, this is the process, but it did turn out that uh, one of the things that we really liked about that is how it makes them feel like they are not in the past. Like these are happening right now, which becomes its own sort of uh, a metaphor for trauma, mm -hmm. right? Because it's like, this is still alive within you. Like this is happening in a physiological sense, still happening to you. But like, uh, we don't come to that by saying, oh, like here are uh, the aspects of trauma that we want to explore. Here is like a narrative way to do that. It's more, again, to sort of just try to go where the idea is taking us. And then we end up in these places that are very rich and full and have a lot to say about a bunch of things actually. Uh, so intuitively following the beats of the story ends up replicating this state of mind that matches so well with the the PTSD that these women are ending up feeling. Yeah, yeah. And um, I don't mean to uh, make it sound like the most kind of mysterious process um, in the world. I mean, I'm in the room, we are talking about these things, but it's almost like you sort of like start to go down a story road and then you start to talk about the more thinky part of it and then... Uh, they kind of develop maybe like both at the same time. But with the story beat, which is for us a uh, kind of physiological kind of response to a story beat or a move or a character moment that has uh, the essence of the story in it. Like you can mm -hmm. just like feel it. You just get so excited. Like I just can't wait to make that real. And that has to come, I think, first and foremost, because I kind of feel like if you try too hard to tell a story about X, you will just pull all the life out of it. And because I should also say, like, we're not qualified uh, mental health professionals. We've done research, like, we're not a kind of authorities on trauma. We are very curious about it as well. And like, part of the point of doing any of this um, is to learn and to sort of change your perspective on it, to sort of have an experience in the creation of it that is kind of enriching, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's part of the energy of it. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And what can keep it from being 
a very special episode about cannibalism. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Although, yeah. <laughs> it does, as you say, create this very visceral effect, both, I guess, in creating it and also in watching it. And I'd love to know more about how you set about creating that tone and kind of the horror vocabulary of the show. There are all those very striking and brutal violent images. And I'm wondering how you came to the decision that it was important to be so unflinching from the violence. One of the things that we like very early on started to get kind of excited by was the idea of as uh, much as possible trying to unpack this experience in as much of a, a subjective way as possible. Now, there are obviously kind of limitations there, you know, like it's not like a VR acid dream, but like to what extent could we give the audience a sense of kind of the experience of uh, what was happening to the main characters in uh, kind of both storylines? And because one of the big things that we wanted to explore is uh, not just how horrible uh, uh, 96 was, but also how sort of incredibly alive uh, the characters feel. Like, to be sort of on the edge of survival, you know, is obviously like a uh, terrifying, but also to, you know, have these characters in this time period so highly socialized and constricted, to have all of that thrown off mm-hmm. to sort of like uh, recreate their own uh, little sort of like norms to a certain extent there also has to be something exhilarating about that experience. And so wanting to sort of take the audience on their own ride of that kind, because, you know, like a thing that we've heard from people and like this just makes us so happy is that it's like, oh my God, the show is so intense and it's so heavy and they will make comments about how sort of like dark we must be. But they'll also talk to us about how much fun they're having and how the show also felt safe to turn the show on. Like as though like they were in this place that was sort of like nice. And that was almost like a consequence of some of the shifts maybe in sort of tone and kind of genre. And so what we were hoping to accomplish, one is to tell a story with the like trappings and techniques of genre. It does sort of heighten the story just enough that would allow for many of the moves that uh, we wanted to make to sort of have this story that was by turns a uh, kind of exhilarating and terrifying and nerve-wracking and hopefully hilarious as well like mm-hmm. it all just felt so much more possible using genre like using the slight like i guess this is going to sound a uh, kind of contradictory because i think the genre allows you to be just a hair disconnected from the story and it leaves you i think what it does is it let you step back from the real world stakes of the story, Mm -hmm. right? So that it's like, you don't have to like fully deal with the guilt and the sort of like human cost of like what this would be like if it was literally real, right? So that allows you to be more subjectively engrossed in the actual story, okay? And so then you can, even with a character like kind of Misty, when she does something terrible, you don't have to be as horrified. You could even be a little excited because it's like, oh, this is such a a misty moment. Mm -hmm. And I think that, like, I hope they're all characters that people see little pieces of themselves in, obviously very, or hopefully very uh, kind of exaggerated, but that there are the pieces of them in kind of the characters. And I think that heightened quality, if you get a little uh, distance from the uh, kind of reality 
allows you to be even more engrossed in the sort of subjective, just craziness of it. I, I think it frees the audience up to have a more felt experience than one that is about thinking through the consequences of trauma, of a teenage life, of a midlife, if that makes sense. Definitely, definitely. It is a very emotional show. I remember watching the pilot and feeling so shaken because it felt as though it was reaching deep, deep down through years of adulthood into my teenage brain and kind of going like, there was some stuff there. We're going to drag it all out. So how do you go about thinking about creating that emotional connection so that these teenage girls who are going through this intense experience and off in the wilderness and doing some ritual cannibalism, that story ends up feeling so universal and relatable. Well, I mean, one, thank you so much. That That's just uh, really great to hear. You know, it's funny. It's like, I don't know that I would have ever had the audacity to sort of set out to be like, we're going to make this teen survival cannibalism story that everyone in the audience is going to relate to. But we're so happy that it happened. And well, I mean, like... You did know all along. Well, I mean, I think that the goal, right, is always to make it kind of relatable on some level, right? Like uh, the particulars or the specifics are kind of different. Or like, maybe I shouldn't say that's always the goal for uh, kind of everybody, but that's always the goal for us, like is proceeding through the particulars of kind of a story, regardless of whether it's about something very gritty and real or if it's about something very heightened, is to try to get to something true and that matters about, I don't want to say the human spirit, but like, I'm going to say the human spirit, like (laughs) something about this experience of being a person that matters and resonates. Obviously, Everybody has a different experience in the particulars. There's an unending kind of variety there. But like in the deepest part of it, I think that there can always be like a connection across it. And that's maybe the place that we're always striving for. Although I wouldn't have like necessarily kind of articulated it that way. It's like, as I kind of say it, like, I know that that's true because the thing we're always talking about is the truth of characters' points of view, finding what this is like from their perspective. And we desperately want us to love all of our characters. And like that uh, weirdly comes from giving them the dignity of like a point of view, like like a thing that will like trip up kind of Ashley and I. I don't think that characters have to be kind of likable, but like I have to like them. On Yellow Jackets, the teenage girls often say and do things that remind us of ourselves, either how we were in high school or how we are now. But there's a sinister darkness hanging over these characters from the very first scene of episode one. These girls, they're eventually going to eat each other. When we come back from a short break, I'll ask Bart. What's the connection between being a teenage girl and cannibalism? Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. 
If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. Support for the gray area comes from Burrow. Getting the right furniture for your place can be really annoying. At this point in my life, I've probably gone through maybe three sets of outdoor deck furniture, and it's a pain in the ass for a different reason every single time. It doesn't look like it did in the pictures, the assembly isn't what they said it was, or it's just not as advertised for whatever reason. Thankfully, Burrow is the furniture company that wants to make it all a little easier. Last year, Burrow introduced their outdoor line, and this spring they're adding to it with their Dunes line, offering new seating, dining, and lounger options designed for luxury, comfort, and durability. Burrow furniture is easy to put together and take apart, so you can move or store it as needed. And it ships straight to your door for free. Great area listeners can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com slash box. That's burrow, B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash box for 15% off borough.com slash box. I want to go back a little to this question of how the cannibalism ends up feeling sort of universal and how it sort of almost feels like it's become a metaphor in this heightened way for the ways that teenage girls can treat each other and the sort of shifting social dynamics and how they can scapegoat one another and freeze each other out. Hmm. I keep thinking about this line that Karen Kasama, who directed the pilot, I think said in the New York Times, which is that for girls with really stable home lives, often adolescence is, to take this back to what we started with, is the first great trauma So how was that first big trauma something that you thought about approaching as you started breaking the show down? Well, I mean, one of the things that we really wanted to do was to use the circumstance to heighten a lot of that sort of first trauma kind of idea. Because it's hard to make things that really are traumatic in that way to always feel a kind of traumatic, right? Mm-hmm. Like, And so what we wanted to do was to use the premise, to use kind of the circumstance to make something like keeping a secret from your best friend or like uh, being unsure like where your friend stands or this idea of like having uh, your friend's side kind of against you. These things can feel so big and so sort of like threatening. And we wanted to use the premise of a very thin margin of survival to uh, make them as big as they feel for these characters. So that was really one of like the big approaches there in terms of like the cannibalism 
specifically, I say this from kind of an amateur standpoint. No professional teenage girl experience. Right. (laughs) I think that there are deep depths of rage in all people. And like, I think that they manifest in different ways. And I think when you're talking about boys have different uh, social outlets to sort of like express those, right? In a sort of more uh, sanctioned way. So we wanted to kind of specifically with the idea of the cannibalism to try to get into the depths of the um, ecstatic savagery that has to exist in human beings and is for good reasons, uh, like uh, we are estranged from and uh, wanting to take a look at the way that, in this case, girls interact, but like people um, in general, like to what extent are these things that we're doing, these sort of social kind of interpersonal dances that we're doing, how much are they informed and actually like ways of expressing some of these things, right? So I want to turn a little bit to something you said earlier about how you obviously are not professional experts in PTSD or trauma, but Mm -hmm. that it is something that you talk about and informs the way that you find your way to different parts of the story. So how does that process typically work? How do you let your research inform the storytelling? So I guess there are a couple ways. One is kind of a lot of times uh, a research or even sort of like a personal experience can kind of come in either in the beginning or it can be sort of a, a validating of like a road that we went down. Like a TV writer's room is one of the most magical places to be. Uh, there's a lot of deep talking and sharing and exploring. So it can be as simple as uh, somebody's like, oh, I was listening to a podcast when I was walking the dogs um, and like I heard this thing. And as soon as I heard it, I thought of Taisa's story, you know, and then we'll, even if that specific thing does not get used or deployed, the conversation that comes after that or how it shifts or changes helps to sort of like break something loose or bring the story to someplace that it wouldn't have been brought to otherwise. I don't think we ever started with, oh, like here is kind of DSM checklist mm-hmm. of ways that people behave um, as they're processing trauma or um, experience trauma. But a lot of that stuff does come in as you kind of go or just talking or just now viewing the world through the lens of like working on this show. I mean, it's strange how things will start to find you in ways that you didn't uh, completely expect just because now you are kind of awake to the possibility of the world being sort of um, a certain way, or you're trying to extract from it a certain thing. It is sort of chaotic, but also incredible. Like, it is amazing that stories come out of it, because it does uh, feel like, and stories with so much weight, uh, like, occasionally, because there does also come a point where you're just talking about what feels like technical storytelling pieces, Mm -hmm. right? Like you're talking in the language of drama. But I guess I do believe that there is something in kind of the aesthetics of a narrative shape that has a lot to say about a lot of these things. So that even if you are just paying attention to telling a story, that you are going to end up talking about a lot of things that aren't just, you know, the specifics of plot and like you are actually going to be digging into 
the experience in like a deep way. And I think it's so telling that you use the phrase I loved um, wanting to avoid a checklist of DSM symptoms, which is almost, I think, word for word what the New Yorker critic Parl Sagel said in this recent essay on the trauma plot, which I don't know if you read. But she was arguing that too many of our novels and pop culture and TV and movies are now just treating their characters as lists of DSM symptoms and substituting the sort of gravitas that comes with the idea of trauma for unearned senses of character revelation. So I'm wondering how you go about avoiding flattening out these very real terrible things that have happened to people when you're presenting them in this fictional way to create something that can feel quite universal, as we've been saying, but is also not just sort of saying, well, everyone has experienced trauma, and so are we not all, in the end, victims in this kind of flat, dull storytelling way. Right. Yeah. No, I hadn't read that. So I guess I feel pretty good about that then. (laughs) Um, I think that we approach it by having first and foremost, I think the goal of not making it flat, because like, I don't think stories are the best sort of venue to give a, a kind of a lecture. Like, I think that kind of lectures can be great, right? There are ways to use story within a, a kind of lecture, but like the needs of making a good story don't really loan themselves to a in-depth, detailed, specific, thought-through, analytical exploration of like a thing. So if you are sort of proceeding from that standpoint of like, oh, let me uh, lay out these like six points about trauma, you're going to make a very thin story because mm-hmm. you're going to have to ignore so many of your storytelling kind of instincts to get to those six points. Because if you start to write a conversation between two characters, like the only way that we know how to do it, it might sound corny to say you're going to do more uh, kind of listening, but like it's actually not that far from uh, the metaphor. Like you have to follow it where it's going. Like if you are continually going, no, 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 don't say that. Like come back to bullet point number four, you're going to end up like our process as such or our uh, kind of ability as such that like we can't uh, make it feel alive because it's not alive. Like it's just being forced to do what uh, we decided to do at kind of the beginning. So I think that the only way that we know how to make it feel rich and full is by uh, making that the most important thing. And to let that sense, even if you're uh, listening to a podcast or kind of reading a book or talking to somebody, when you hear something, If you're viewing it through the lens of how does this help tell the story or how does this make the character fuller as opposed to, oh, like that's a great sort of like nuance of trauma and all of that stuff can be very worthwhile. I just don't know how to use it first in writing a television show. So it sounds like you're saying put the story first and everything else sort of follows from that. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. So... What are some other stories that you know of that you think handle similar themes in an effective way that don't sort of create this flattening that Pearl Siegel's talking about? So, I mean, uh, just because she's on my bedside table, Alice Monroe, and because like her stories are so structurally rich, like in terms of this idea of uh, the aesthetics of like a narrative shape, 
having a lot to say about a subject matter. Um, I think she's a really good kind of example of that. I think The Sopranos um, has a lot to say, like about trauma, about how, but also how just the trauma of being a human being can be so devastating. Like there is a deep existential dread uh, that seems to come along with being a person that as much as anything, I suspect sometimes that the way that trauma works on some level is that it uh, reaches into a well that exists and sort of pulls things out of it. So that like, I think that the space of dread is allowed or forced to expand as a result of traumatic experience. And, you know, I think The Sopranos did a great job of talking about that sort of dread sphere, um, if you will. Mm -hmm. And so how do you feel now about this place we're in, in the culture where sort of every story that comes out either you know, the creative team might say, oh, well, this is secretly about trauma or that will be the first lens that the critical community or the fans might take to it. How do you feel about this place we're in where that becomes one of the first ways that we approach so many of the stories that we're seeing? Interesting. Yeah, I mean, I guess I feel just thinking about myself as like a fan first, mm -hmm. right? The phenomenon of getting angry at something for not being good is one that I'm uh, viscerally familiar with, right? But like thinking about it for a second, I think what part of it has to be is like, you let me down. Like I came here for answers mm -hmm. and you resorted to tricks or you didn't have the courage or whatever your laundry list of things that were wrong with a given piece, right? Like as an audience member, you get angry or disappointed because you came here for something and like you didn't get it. Mm -hmm. And so I understand a view that is the sort of like, oh my God, like everything's about trauma now, like get original team. Like, so like, I'm not saying that that point of view is wrong. Like I certainly get it, but uh, maybe to take like a different view of it, I think that how that happens, you know, because obviously like the world of story uh, generation, right? Like the television uh, kind of landscape is a lot of people operating uh, without knowing what everybody else is doing, right? Like uh, uh, what you're seeing on screen today can be the result of like a development cycle that was a couple years in kind of the making. And it's like, everybody doesn't always know what everybody else is kind of working on. And so I don't know. I might be talking myself into feeling really good about it because the idea that you have so many people being sort of like drawn to this kind of arena, like, I mean, to sort of to a certain extent to have someplace that is so kind of responsible for uh, the entertainment and um, in a weird way, the dreams of people to have that sector go like, things are not okay. Mm -hmm. But more than that, like, I'm not saying, oh, Hollywood is so great because at the end of the day, like, they're just trying to deliver the story that people care about. But uh, what that means to me is that there's like a market for it, is that like people are uh, maybe uh, more so than they ever have been prepared to uh, kind of engage with this on some way. Like, obviously, I live in a very specific context and circle, but like, everybody's in therapy now. And like, People are making such kind of an effort to have the part of their life that isn't just work be meaningful. And they're trying to find a way to um, engage with this world in a meaningful way. And I think that if you are someone who has started to do that, like 
trauma is one of the first things you're going to find. And so like, I think that maybe this is a, a demonstrative of like a shift in uh, the audience where as they are prepared, and we, I, I mean, I count myself as kind of an audience member, uh, first and foremost, as we are prepared to go on that personal journey, we are more wanting to see that journey uh, uh, rendered in all the sort of colors and ways that television shows and stories in general can render it. Bart is right. The Yellow Jackets audience has been all too prepared to dive into the journey of its characters. The internet is awash in fan theories, speculating on secret identities, conspiracies, and predictions for what things these women might do or might have already done. After one last short break, I'll ask Bart Nickerson, what is in store for the team in season two? Support for the gray area comes from Greenlight. If you're a parent of teenagers, you might be starting conversations about money management and financial literacy. So often, the best way to learn is to do. But when it comes to money, there can be real consequences to learning the hard way. That's where Greenlight comes in. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on their spending and saving. And kids and teens can build money confidence and lifelong financial skills. My kid is way too young to talk money with, thank God. But I have a colleague here at Vox that uses Greenlight with his boys, and he loves it. If you want to help your kids learn about money, consider Greenlight. It's a convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and for families to navigate this stuff together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash gray area. That's greenlight.com slash gray area to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash gray area. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. So just quickly going to do a super fast lightning round. We've been talking very intellectual and and airy, but now we're just going to go into the nitty gritty just for the fans. Okay, great. So there are a lot of fan theories that sort of abound about this show. Mm -hmm. Have you been tracking them and do you have a favorite? 
I've been tra- I've been tracking them a, a little bit, and uh, yeah, I do have a favorite. I think my favorite was that the the woman that we saw running in the teaser of the pilot was uh, that was actually not a flashback. That was a fast forward, and Ooh. that woman was actually Callie, who had been kidnapped and brought back to the wilderness in order to lure, I think, Shauna and some other number of the Yellow Jackets back. So um, I just thought that was like such like a clever, funny theory. It's not actually possible. Like, I feel like the pilot pretty clearly established that that girl was then eaten by kind of Misty and some other people. But like Mm -hmm. that sort of like fifth dimensional kind of idea was like, I just thought very cool and funny and super clever. Very clever. And speaking of Misty and assorted others eating the pit girl. Mm-hmm. So I know we've said that the figures we see in the pilot flashbacks, aside from Misty, are mostly played by body doubles. Do you know who each of the figures that we see there are supposed to be among our yellow jackets? Like the equivalent yes, of? Yes, we do. We do know who they are. Okay. This is a reference to my personal favorite fan theory, but. One of my favorite things is Misty's pet bird, Caligula. Yeah. And there's a lot of lore around the Roman Emperor Caligula, some of which is kind of cannibally. So is there any significance to Misty giving her bird that name? Um, I mean, I know it's supposed to be like the lightning round, but... You can go long in the lightning round. I'm sorry, yeah. Like, like I need more time. Um, to be a thousand percent honest, I was not aware of the Caligula cannibalism connection. I'm going to Google that as soon as we're done because that sounds awesome. So I want to say that it was not intentional, but I am a big believer that if you are um, engaging with the process as something that is sort of powerful and uh, kind of mysterious, I do think that those connections do have a kind of meaning, even if they're not entirely intended, because I do actually kind of remember the feeling of deciding on that name and it just Mm -hmm. felt so right that it's like that that feeling has to be uh, loaded with some sense of uh, the associations that are carried with Caligula. It's also not surprising that he would be into cannibalism. It seemed like he was in a lot of stuff. He does. I think this particular story is probably very fake, but um, it's very striking (laughs) given the things that surround him. Also just a great pet bird name. (laughs) Um, And finally, just more generally, what can you tell us about what's in the works for season two? Well, uh, it is also tricky because I am so uh, a sense of like, I hate spoilers. Totally. But I'm also very attracted to uh, reading think pieces or uh, I'm always searching out the sort of people behind a thing. And then I even ask for spoilers and then I get them and I'm like, why did I do that? Played yourself. Yeah, exactly. So a lot of season one has been about the growing influence of some perceived force or presence mm-hmm. in a kind of the wilderness and seeing its reemergence in the present day, its pull kind of reemerging in kind of the present day. And so one of the big things for season two will be that continued trajectory. Mm-hmm. Okay, so does that mean we'll be seeing some more of this apparent cult that was kidnapping Natalie in the final scenes? I think that that is a safe bet, yeah. Okay, and perhaps the mysterious present-day Lottie will show her face. Yeah, yeah, that is definitely the plan. That's very exciting. I'm very down to see what she is up to 
in 2020, whatever year it is when we come back. <laughs> I know. <laughs> uh, we are super excited to get into that too. So, Well, thank you so much for stopping by. I think this has been a real pleasure. Thank you so much. Uh, this was so much fun. Vox Conversations is produced by Eric Janikas. Our editor is Amy Drostowska. Paul Robert Mouncey mixed and mastered this episode. Our theme music was dreamed up by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. And Amber Hall is the deputy editorial director of Vox Talk. Special thanks this week to Emily Vanderwerth, Vox's critic at large, for her help on this episode. If you like the show, let us know. Room for improvement, we want to hear that too. We're curious to know what you think, what you want more of, what we could improve. And if you have ideas for future guests or topics, send us your thoughts at voxconversations at vox.com. And hey, if you did like this episode, share it with your friends, rate and review, and come back on Monday for a brand new episode. <laughs>